Well, I knew the dude was lost when I saw his fancy clothes. He missed his exit ramp about 30 miles down the road. I drew a napkin map so he could get back home. But he's buying round and talking loud and he's in my danger zone. One of the first tales I'll tell will be uh, what amounts to pigeon dropping deal. The Jews called it pigeon dropping when they'd lay something on the ground and people pick it up, and I'll get into that a little further down. But on this this particular occasion, this was right at the beginning of the Bad Depression, right after the uh, the, uh, the early 30s, right after the stock market had broken, and uh, uh, a bunch of rich people had lost money in the stock market. And one of these happened to be ahead of one of the banks in San Antonio. And uh, the gamblers, of course, keep track of those things, and they found out this old boy was desperate to get a hold of some money. Well, they, one of them, uh, uh, that Fatty knew, had uh, uh, rigged up a machine that was called a money-making machine. And what they'd do, they'd put a, a piece of paper that was the same size of a $100 bill, and, and they'd take a, a good $100 bill and, and uh, lay it on the, uh, up against this one, and they'd stick it in this machine at one end and grind it, and the lights would come on and flash, and it sounded like it's going through some kind of liquid. And then in about a minute, well, it'd spit out a couple of $100 bills on the other end of it. And, of course, these bills had come out all that. Both of them were good $100 bills. They, they wasn't any way you could detect them from being counterfeit because, as a matter of fact, they weren't counterfeit. Well, uh, they went down to, to uh, San Antonio and got them a room in the, in the Gunner Hotel, and they made a date with this old boy that's president of this bank to come over and look at this machine and see if he wouldn't be interested in spending about $10,000 to get him a machine that could make him a million. And they got him in there, and Fatty happened to be in on the, the seance when it took place. I don't, he didn't tell me who the guy was that was selling the machine, but he said that this president of the bank come over, and, and they run this $100 bill. He brought his own $100 bill, so he knew it was good. He brought a $100 bill over there to, to make, uh, make new ones out of it. They run his $100 bill in this machine, and, and these two good bills come out on the other side, and, and uh he kind of liked it. They said his eyes sparkled real well when he started making music. This little machine did and slashed through that water. He wanted to believe that so bad he did. But anyway, he takes these two good $100 bills over to his bank and just casually runs them through and, and uh, makes it in such a way that they'll be closely examined and find out whether it's counterfeit or not. And, of course, they weren't counterfeit. Well, that suited him. So the next day, he hauls off and brings $10,000 of the bank's money over and buys this machine, and they deliver it to him. Of course, they disappear out of town after that. And uh, this old boy, he, he just in a in a hell of a shape, cause he not only owed the bank a whole lot more than the ten thousand, but then he had that ten thousand he just taken out, and he he just had to get a hold of it somehow. Well, he he was uh, he went before the grand jury, went told the district attorney about how these gamblers had cheated him, and, and he wanted them uh, wanted them caught. So uh, they started the hue and cry to try to try to find out where these boys were, and. Uh, in the meantime, old man Isaac Bledsoe, who owned this music store in San Antonio, he had been taken on this thing about six months before that. He'd given $10,000 for a music machine because he was just greedy. He didn't. He wasn't in a bad financial shape, but it looks good to him. He thought that would be easier to make money with that thing than it was to, to sell uh, pianos. And, and so he had bought one, and, and he didn't he didn't bellyache about it when, when he found out that he had been taken. So he heard about this uh, deal uh, uh, going for the grand jury, and he's afraid that in the publicity that took place or the investigation that they would find out that he had bought one of these machines for the purpose of counterfeiting and it'd get him in bad with the government and, and with his public. So actually, uh, uh, the story is, and I think it's true, that old man Isaac Bledsoe uh, gave this banker his $10,000 back if he'd keep his mouth shut. 
And uh, that's what uh, Fatty told me anyway. And then further on up the line, I uh, represented the old boy that kidnapped Isaac Bledsoe and took some money off of him. He was a school teacher from out the little old town a lot, nephew of old J.L. Strobel in Austin, and run a cafe business there. And I'll get around to him a little later, but in the prison stories. But Isaac Bledsoe paid this uh, $10,000 back, so he was out about $20,000 on his pigeon-dropping deal. I'm going to tell you a story about what was called the sign game. It was uh, right during the Depression that my very good friend, Rex Kitchens, Rex and I had been in the uh, foremost school in the first grade on, and uh, we were just lifelong friends, and Rex was, uh, it started out in the carpenter's trade, and he had gone down to uh, Port Arthur or Beaumont somewhere, and he had fallen off of a scaffold and broken his legs up pretty badly, and he got to where he couldn't stand on his legs in the carpenter, so he came back home to Austin. And I was handling a little business for him. He had, a, he had a foreclosure on his automobile. And I got him acquainted with Coleman Gay over that. I didn't handle those kind of things. And, but anyway, Rex was, was uh, trying to get into contracting business because he knew that he just couldn't carpenter anymore. And he and his wife, Effie, had saved up uh, uh, about four or $500. They had it in the bank. And, and Rex was going to get ahead in the world, which he did finally. He made millions of dollars for us all over in contracting business. And I'll go into that a little bit later just in my personal tapes about people that I know. But at this time, Rex was, he was, he was hungry. He wanted to get ahead in a hurry. And, and so uh, there's an old boy named Jasper Kennerly who was a nephew of the federal judge, uh, a federal district judge in, in Houston, old Judge Kennerly down there. Jasper had been in the Boy Scouts with me, and he had a little uh, white eyebrow. His left eyebrow was white. But, and Jasper had made a star scout when he was in the Scouts, but he'd fallen on barren days, and he'd gotten into the gambling trade. And uh, so... Uh, he knew Rex was in the, trying to get some contracts in business, and he had played some a few games of poker with Rex in small way, and so he thought maybe he could. Uh, he found out Rex had uh, this four or five hundred dollars on hand, and so he told Rex. He said, "Now uh, I've got a friend from Galveston that's going to move up here and go into the put put him up a nightclub out where across from St. Edwards College where old Jack Rankins had his uh, t uh, courts out there. Jack was a gambler too, and he was one of the boys. And I don't know whether Rex lived or Rex lived in Travis Heights at that time, but anyway." He got Rex interested in talking to this contractor and seeing if he couldn't get the job putting up this nightclub. And Rex was all for that, guys. He'd make he'd make several thousand dollars out of it. So uh, he, uh, old Jasper introduced him to this uh, supposedly man who's going to build this big building. And and uh, during the course of the conversations and meeting with the man, old uh, Jasper told him, told Rex, said, now this old boy thinks he's a good gambler, and he is a good one, but he knows I'm a better gambler, and he won't gamble with me. But he might gamble with you. He might play a little poker with you if you'll uh, let me bank the game and him not know it. So what the, the deal was this. Uh, uh, so Jasper was a good friend of both of them. And uh, this old boy that, uh, from Galveston, he would l let Jasper have the free run of the, of, the, of the room while they were doing the gambling. And the game, deal was it. Jasper was to look over uh, this old boy's shoulder and give Rex a sign as to what, what he had, as to whether or not Rex could beat him with the hand that Rex had. Just called the sign game. And so they had a date set up to go up in the Alamo Hotel, and Jasper was going to put all the money up, three or $400, and they figured they could take this old boy for three or $400 in, in about an hour or so. And so Rex went up there with him. He's all in for it. Rex is in for cheating. He had, he had malice in his heart. So they got up there, and he thought he couldn't lose as long as none of his money's in it. He's just going to get a cut on what they made out of Jasper's money with him playing it. So they got up in the Alamo Hotel, and it must have been around noon. Because uh, he come in our office about 3 o'clock that evening uh, crying. But uh, he got up there, and then he, uh, in about 3 o'clock, he came in our office, poking eyes over in the Capital National Bank building at that time. And uh, 
Uh, Rex come in and he told us what had happened. He told us a story that I've just told you. And then he said that he got down there to this game and said he won the first three or four hands. With, uh, this old boy, uh, Jasper, gave him the sign that he won, uh, that he had the best hand, and he bet. And so finally they come up to a hand and, that uh, uh, Rex had a cinch on. Uh, uh, old Jasper told uh, by signs, he told Rex that he had the best hand. And, and uh, so they had all the money in the pot. And uh, uh, then the question come up of what they're going to, how's Rex going to get some more money to bet? This other old boy had some money, so uh, they said they'd just put the both hands in an envelope. And Jasper would hold them, and Rex would go down to the bank and draw this four or five hundred dollars of money he had out, and he'd bring it up, and he could bet, and he could make a little extra money for himself. That's the way he had it figured. So Rex said he went down to the bank, and he got his money out, brought it up, and he put it in the game, and of course he won that hand. And then he said as soon as he got his four or five hundred dollars in there, uh, the signs started missing, and old Jasper uh, was giving him the wrong signs, and this old boy clipped old Rex for his four or five hundred dollars. And the further he went, and when Rex got broke, his head was just red hot, and he came off up to our office. He'd read to shoot somebody. He knew he'd been cheated somehow or another. Well, he unloaded this story on Polk and me, and the further he went along with it, well, the further Polk sat back in his chair, and Polk was just down to the point of laughing when, when Rex got through. And Polk said, Rex, have you ever heard of the sign game? Rex said, no, what is that? Well, he said, that's just what they pulled on you. You were the pigeon. They dropped it in your lap. And he said, you can't complain about it because you, you intended to cheat the other man. Now, what you going to do about it? Well, they said, I'm going to kill him. He said, hell, I, that's all the money F and I got. I just can't, I can't go for that. Well, we thought that this. We knew old Fatty Wright was acquainted with Mervyn Ash and some of the other gamblers and Jasper. And so we called Fatty. Told Fatty what had happened and said Rex is getting ready to spill over the apple cart. He's going to the sheriff or going to the grand jury. Even if he knew he was wrong, he's going to make a big stink and make the sheriff put the uh, lid on this gambling in Austin and not let anybody else get hurt. Well, old Fatty said, well, hold off and let me go up and, and talk to Lee and Lee's the sheriff and I'll see if I can make him, make old Jasper give Rex his money back. So uh, Lee, old Fatty went up to see Lee and and uh, Lee Allen said, well, hell, I, it wasn't anything wrong. Rex was the one trying to cheat. said, I'm not going to butt my nose into that thing at all. But said, uh, see if he won't give him about a couple of hundred dollars back and, and let it go at that. So anyway, we negotiated around. And I think I got Rex about $200 back, and he had to give Polk and I $50 of it. But uh, he did do this. He, he he was so upset that night he wrote a letter to this old boy, giving him a threatening, uh, really threatening. And uh, so uh, he come back and told me the next day what he'd done. I said, well, Rex, you wasn't in trouble until you wrote that letter. If that old boy turns out over the federal post office authorities, you're going to be in trouble. But that was the sign game, and uh, Rex got took on that job. I think Rex did learn not to gamble anymore anyway. Since I mentioned this story about Isaac Bledsoe being kidnapped by this boy from Lot, Texas, who was a nephew of Strobel, I might as well continue with that, since that's in the general vein of gambling. But anyway, this boy had uh, kidnapped Mr. Bledsoe, and he'd gotten uh, several thousand dollars out of him. And uh, rather than uh, give the money up, he decided he'd just take a, a plea of guilty and go to state penitentiary. He made enough money to where it lasted him for several years. He figured it was fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars. Bledsoe had paid him, and uh, they agreed to let him have a light sentence if he'd give the money back. But he said he couldn't make money any faster than going to penitentiary. So what he did, he loaned this money to his uncle J. L. Strobel, and who was then living in San Marcos, and so and running a cafe. Well, Strobel come up to Austin and opened up this cafe in Austin on on uh, West Seventh Street there right by the Capitol Hotel, where the barbershop is now in that area. And uh, so uh, then this old boy went on down to the penitentiary. And uh, Strobel was uh, in with him, and uh, after three or four years, I guess Ms. Ferguson was governor then, well, there was a chance for this old boy to get out, and I got acquainted with him, and, 
And uh, so I figured surely his uncle would try to uh, help him get out. So I went to see Strobel about uh, writing a letter and trying to take the initiative, trying to get his nephew out. And he wouldn't do it. And so in the, my investigation, I found out that Strobel had really protested it. He didn't want his nephew to get out because he figured that he'd get his interest in that cafe back. He'd, he'd uh, promised to give him a half interest in the cafe, and so he didn't want him to get out. So that's the kind of guy Strobel was. And then old Buck Berlin had been in the penitentiary uh, for burglary. He went down there periodically th about the, in those days, and he was one. Uh, he was a Gaten Berlin's brother, and he did a little gambling around on the side and a little burglary. But uh, he learned uh, who Strobel was through his nephew while he's in Huntsville. And his, uh, uh, this Strobel nephew told him to come by and, and drop a pigeon on old Strobel. So the way, uh, way Buck did this, he, he went by one, one day at right noon and, and talked to Mr. Strobel and told him that he could get him a, a big old box of cart, uh, about uh, 30 cartons of cigarettes for uh, about half price. Well, uh, Strobel knew that he was a burglar and he knew that he was an ex-convict and he was a friend of his uh, nephew who had been in the penitentiary and he knew he would buy him hot goods if he bought them. So, uh, uh, he agreed to do it. He agreed to take this. And so Buck told him, said, now I'll come by here about 5 o'clock this evening to 6 o'clock when things are a little light. And, and uh, I'll come in the back door and I'll give you this uh, this uh, big old uh, carton of, of cigarettes. And you pay me cash. Well, old Buck did that. He come in and he slipped old Strobel this, uh, this box of supposed to be cigarettes and, and he took out. And uh, he, Strobel opened it up and found out it was full of sawdust. And so he just, well, he was outraged. So he called Lee Allen and told Lee Allen the whole truth. He just said that he was buying these cigarettes for about half price and from an ex-convict. And Lee just eat him up. He said, I ought to come down there and put you in jail. He said, you knew you would buying hot cigarettes. He said, I'm glad you got burned. But that was the story about Strobel and, and that little incident of Buck Burlam. I represented old Blackie Hart and one of Hart's uh, for murder, uh, killing a night watchman down at uh, in Harwood, Texas. And his, uh, the one that got caught was, uh, uh, his, was a... Uh, Steps, step for a brother or something of a uh, brother-in-law of the old boy that owned the, Alamo, the uh, Manhattan Cafe in San Antonio. It was, one of the, it was the nicest cafe in San Antonio at the time. That was in the middle 30s. And uh, I got acquainted with that old boy because he put the money up for, for his brother-in-law and, and I represent him and kept him going to penitentiary because they couldn't make a case out against him. They, they sent old Blackie down there for it, but they couldn't uh, pin this, uh, this, uh, anything on this boy. So uh, while I was uh, investigating this case and talking with him, well, I run into... Uh, uh, one of a gambling friends that sold hot goods and he said that this old boy that owned the Manhattan Cafe was just a dope for buying uh, what he thought was hot diamonds. He said that you'd, you'd go down there one time and show him some pretty good diamonds and he'd have them appraised and, and he'd pay you about half price for them and then uh, you'd build up a little confidence in him and he wouldn't go have them appraised anymore. And so anytime that this old boy that was a, uh, supposed to be the thief, he said he'd buy some old uncut diamonds or some stuff that come in out of Mexico and he'd wrap them up in a newspaper and take them down and meet this old boy in the kitchen that's come through the alley and meet him in the kitchen of his cafe there and he'd unload the sawest bunch of diamonds in the world on it a whole lot more than what they actually were. He's buying round and talking loud and he's in the danger zone. No history of gambling around Austin would be complete without a story about the sequence of Posey Hill. Now, Posey Hill was uh, a bootlegger when I first started practicing law and he was about my age. And I had some business for him there, but he had learned to gamble in East Austin. He was raised over east of East Avenue. He had learned it the hard way and, and uh, he had uh, uh, learned how to shoot dice over there. Within. And when you've done that in East Austin in the early 30s or uh, late 20s of this century, then you have become a master at that art. So that was where Posey was born and where he was raised, I guess. Anyway, he was raised out there. 
When I first started practicing law in 1928, I ran into Posey through our firm, and Posey was involved with bootlegging a little bit, and he got caught once in a while, but uh, anyway, it was hard to make a living back in those days about the Depression. But Posey was raised up, as I said, with the boys out there, and he learned how to gamble. And I'll tell you, when you have learned how to hold your own with an East Austral back in those days, you were a master gambler. And so Posey had been able to do that. And he also learned the art. There was two arts to gambling, the dice. And uh, I might stop right here and say that back in those days, they, the dice had sharp corners. And there were some of our clients, and Posey was one of them, that could take a, a pair of dice and put them in his hands in a certain way and sound, make them sound like he's shaking them in his hand. But he'd throw them out without hitting a wall or anything. Just show them out and make them spin, and he could count with them. And there was a, he learned that from one of our other clients who was a bigger man named Gregos. He was an albino. And he was a gambler that could, uh, he was black and uh, partly black anyhow, and, and he could count with, with dice. Well, Poe had learned uh, to be a master uh, at the hands of Gregos and some of his associates. And then the other art I'm talking about is how to load dice. Back in those days, they, uh, people talked about loaded dice. I never did know enough about them to do that, but you could... Uh, drill a hole where some of the dots were on the dice and put some sort of a liquid behind that and, and load them in such a way that, that uh, the odds were very strong on the, that part of the dice being either the bottom or the top. If it was a heavy liquid, well, it would, uh, it would make the opposite uh, number come up the more often. It didn't do it every time, but it, the odds were strong in your favor. Well, anyway, that was Posey's background. And as I say, we had represented him for bootlegging, and he got out of that, but we never did represent Posey for gambling, and I didn't know that he was really a high-class gambler until after the Second World War. But Posey uh, was about 39 or 40 years old when the war broke out, and, and he had no children at that time, and I don't think he was married, so he was prime uh, uh, material for the draft. Anyway, he got into the Army, and he got over to Honolulu and uh, before he was going overseas, and and uh, on over to the Philippines, where he finally wound up when the war was over. But Posey uh, uh, inhabited a gambling house there right close to Pearl Harbor, although his, uh, the encampment was out somewhere in the hinterlands around Honolulu. And uh, this uh, gambling house was located particularly for the benefit of the, the servicemen. They were supposed to take all the money away from them that they could and steal it from the servicemen. So uh, they had a, a gambling uh, paraphernalia and everything was upstairs over a little bar. And so Posey had two of his friends that had uh, gone gone in with him, and they'd go down to this gambling house when they, on their nights off, and they had uh, frequented it for about a month or so, and Posey had finally uh, played uh, with all the dice they, they had. They had they had crooked dice also, and Posey could read them, and he knew what was going on. So what he did, they they had come up with about four different pairs of dice that the house was using, and, and if you got to winning on one, they'd switch them on you. So Posey knew that game, so he went back to the camp, and he made four pairs, exactly like those that the house had. Then he and his two friends one night decided they were going down and clean this gambling house out with their loaded dice. They loaded them, and uh, where they had come up with the numbers that he wanted to make. And so they got in there and said they got to shooting dice, and of course, about took them about two and a half, three hours to clean the man out. It was about 11 o'clock, and about time for them to leave anyhow, and so the uh, house ran out of money. And so the, they had a little huddle, the managers of the gambling house did over in the corner said they'd have to go downstairs and pick up a little more money and come back up. Well, Posey and his two friends knew what that meant. They had gone down there to get guns or somehow or another, arrest them or do something. They are going to take them in. So when the men left and went downstairs, Posey and his two friends jumped out the 
the windows is just a two-story house, and they jumped out the window and run out and hid in the pineapple uh, uh, orchard all, all that night, and they, they were AWOL when they got in the next morning. But Posey was telling me this story uh, uh, in the late 40s, uh, and he said that he, he took them for about right at $30,000 that night. He took all the money they had and said before he went back to camp, he went down to, to the telegraph office in Honolulu and wired all this money back to his wife. So apparently he was married at that time. So he wired it back to his wife so that he couldn't lose it again or they couldn't take it away from him. Well, when he got back to camp, his uh, officer, the lieutenant, uh, had to break him. He was a sergeant. Supposedly he had made a sergeant at that time. And uh, the lieutenant won't know where he was and if he had any excuse for being AWOL. And, of course, Posey wasn't going to tell on him. So uh, they broke him, took all his straps away from him. And Posey was saying that, that uh, he was a private then, and they'd gone all out in the, in the Philippines, and he and his same lieutenant got in a foxhole out there on one of the trips they was making against the enemy, and they was pinned down, and the lieutenant told him, said, Posey, you and I are probably not going to get out of this thing alive. Do you want to tell me now why, why you was AWOL back in Honolulu? And then Posey told him the story I just told you. And the lieutenant said, well, thank you for telling me that, Sergeant. Said uh, you, you can have your stripes back again. The balance of this story is that when Posey got back after the war, his wife had the $30,000 and he bought uh, the Hills Cafe from Merle Goodnight or become a partner in it. And then he made his fortune. And he made quite a little fortune because Posey Hill never nickel ever made, he kept it. And for many years, up in the late, uh, early 50s, I know, he'd come into my office about once every six months and he'd have a brown sack full of bills. All of them was $1,500 bills. He'd carry about $10,000 at a time. He evidently didn't keep a bank out. I don't know. But he'd buy a house out in Little Fair Place in South Austin there on Forest View Avenue. He, he lived there, and he wanted to have all the other houses around him. And about once every six months, Posey would make enough to where he could buy him a house. And he'd bring the money in in a sack, and we'd have the closing out in those days. We'd have them in the lawyer's office, and they'd bring the deeds and the papers up there, and old Posey would make them count this ten or fifteen thousand dollars out that he was putting in his house and that's the way he did his business and Posey has always been a wonderful friend of mine but I'll say this he never went to college one day in his life that I know of and he made a living without working and I went to went to college seven years and I haven't been able to make a living without working so I believe Posey was a smarter man than I was he's buying round and talking loud and he's in my danger zone 